Conversations with the inspiring minds. Using design and creativity towards social change. This is Design for the People with Greg Bunbury. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Greg Bunbury. And on this show, I'll be speaking to the designers, artists, creative thinkers and activists using their skills to tackle social issues, uplift communities and make a difference in the world. On today's show, I have a very special guest, Martin Goodrich. Martin was the co-founder of the Freeform Community Arts Trust, established in 1969. Freeform was a groundbreaking artist-led organization, a multidisciplinary artist practice, and a pioneer of participative community projects. For over 35 years, Freeform delivered imaginative urban renewal and regeneration through art and design-led solutions to humanize social and physical environments. They are an active part of the mural movement in the United Kingdom, which took place from the mid-60s to the mid-80s. In addition to delivering hundreds of projects across the country, from Liverpool to Manchester and the Northwest, Freeform created four mosaic murals in Hackney with funding from the council. One of these murals lived across the road from my house, and I was fascinated with it as a kid growing up in the early 80s. Needless to say, as a piece of community art, it left quite an impression. Martin's grandfather was Henry Edwin Goodrich, the first Labour councillor and the first Labour MP of Hackney, and that influence is perhaps evident in Martin's approach to social art. Freeform's political stance can be summed up in a quote from Martin. We don't want to be about artists, we want to make a difference with people. We are community artists. We work to the benefit of the local people, not to the benefit of the fine art establishment. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm thrilled to hearing all that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's very, very deserved. Um, thanks for joining me. Um, it's uh, a pleasure to have you on here. Um, your work has made uh, such an impression on me as somebody growing up in Hackney uh, across from one of your murals that you created with the Freeform Arts Collective. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background before founding Freeform Arts? Do I start from the beginning? I, th I think it's important to say that I'm I'm an, from an immigrant stock, just like your good self, but we're Irish, and Irish people suffered uh, lots of pressures uh, when I was growing up. In fact, my name is actually Henry Martin Goodrich, but and I was named Henry after my grandfather in in England, who was the guy you mentioned, who was MP. But he had a huge, there was a loose conversation in my family's household, which was in Evering Road, just down the road from you. And there was a row developed and the row was they were being very loose about what they were saying about Irish people. This was in front of my mother. And she went berserk and said, I'm not going to call my son Henry. He's going to be called Martin. So effectively, I was called Martin until I think my father took me aside when I was about 16 and says, when you're signing forms, you've got to start using the word Henry. See? Then I found out about this story, about my mother's outrage at being uh, prejudiced as an Irish woman. There, and that's the kind of cultural background of, of my establishment. And it, it's endemic in society with people, you know, them and us constantly. Uh, and it's there all the time. Um, anyway, <laughs> I digress. What was your question? How did I get going? Um, the, the important thing for me was that uh, I didn't do very well at school, 
I did have a, and I didn't know this at the time, but I did have dyslexia, which meant I had a lot, I suffered a lot of lack of confidence. And the only thing that I survived in was drawing, but even that wasn't very good. I have to say it was not very good at all. Um, but one of the, uh, my first job, was with a, a company called Lotus Cars, a famous motor racing company. And they were in Chesant and they were just emerging out of, I think they started up in Hornsey and they were a, a very, you know, an active company that was getting their cars together and selling to the market and then trying to compete in races like Le Mans. And it was quite a prestigious job. And when I applied for the job, there were three applicants and they gave it to me and I was absolutely thrilled. Um, and in the time I was there, literally about a month of my start, Colin Chapman, the impresario, the man, um, came into the office, unrolled these wonderful drawings and said, this is it, guys. This is the new racing car. I want it all built. This is what's new about it. And he got all excited and presented it. And then the whole team in the office, about seven, ten guys, said, right, right, right. And then the whole of the workforce just spent three months building this car. And then it went on to win his first Grand Prix at, at uh, I think it was Le, um, uh, Monaco. So it's that kind of feeling about the power of someone's creative designs inspiring others to do their part in creating something. And I had that experience. And then I decided to leave because I realized that my job was becoming, because as they became a bit more famous, all I was doing was photocopying and I, I didn't get enough drawing experience. So I was getting a bit fed up. And then I realized I didn't have the qualifications to progress in that particular field. I had no engineering degrees or anything of that nature. So I went back to college. I was only 17, by the way. So it wasn't as if I was, thinking, but it marked impression on me, the power of drawing. I then went to, uh, uh, eventually went to art school and that was the same kind of experience. I couldn't really do it. And then I was just inspired by the fact that they would teach you and they could teach you. And it was a sharing experience with 60 other boys well, and girls all aged between 16 and some of them were a bit older, 22, 23, but mainly it was 16 to 17 year olds. And you all learnt together and you can quite easily see within the context of of people's drawings is those people who had drawings which were looked fantastic uh you began to realize that they weren't mm. you began to realize they had no they weren't inquiring they weren't searching they were just doing what was in their head and it was like they were stuck in their own head environment of crazy book. But they were the people I thought, they were bloody marvellous, you know, fantastic drawings. And so I, w I was eventually picked, there was a, 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 a oh, it's probably, this is probably too much detail, but there was a, everyone was invited, to, asked to do a big painting. And all the paintings were put up around the wall. And then all the students were asked to select the best paintings. And everyone selected what they thought were the best paintings. And then the staff said, we're going to select the, what we think are the five best paintings. And mine was one of them. Now, mine wasn't one of the, the kids, you know, the students' story. And I was absolutely flabbergasted. And they just said, the reason why I've been selecting this one, because this is entirely honest. Everything mm. you see, everything this person has done is actually, he's learnt and he's drawn 
you've seen it. And it's an honest approach. So I was, that was another kind of influence on me, that your work was an honest inquiry into things. We did lots of life drawing and uh, things of that nature. But I, I did quite well. I ended up, after four years, I got into the Royal College of Art, which is kind of like, to me, a higher-end establishment. Um, and progressing from there. But I found that that process of working in the Royal College very kind of unforgiving. There was very little interaction between students. Uh, you, were, you were already in your isolated garret almost in the studios. There was no camaraderie in a sense that I had in when I was in Walthamstow. Um, it, it all gone. It was like you were now in fierce competition with your other. So you weren't sharing. You were competing. Yeah, and I, I I didn't like that atmosphere. I found it hostile, and it's kind of like by the time I'd finished, I want, I wanted out, mm. and and most people got you know leaving the Royal College got sort of highly prestigious art school jobs, and I decided no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to get an ordinary teaching job to make a few bob, and I started to work in uh, in a school called Robert More Fiori Robert Fiori Mont no Robert Montefiore. Uh, secondary modern school in uh, in Tarhamids. Was that decision um, was that intentional in terms of your choice of of where you wanted to work, or was it just what was available? I think it was just what was available. Um, uh, you know, I lived in London. I wouldn't go and work somewhere else. So, mm. um, so yeah, it was it was just what was available. It wasn't a um, uh, a design decision or you know i must go and work with local people sort yeah. of decision it wasn't that at all it was it was a job it was only three days a week and I, I then i could earn enough money to live and then i could do my other things that was you know what was on my mind sure but the experience of teaching changed me in many ways because all of a sudden you're now surrounded by 30 kids who in many ways at least they one thing common about them they're all hungry they're either hungry to destroy you or they're <laughs> hungry to, to learn and to compete with each other. That, the, the atmosphere in the class was kind of like buzzing. Um, but one of the experiences I had there was there was a remit, I had a remedial group of kids, the bad boys, basically. Mm. Bad boys. Uh, and they were, they were, I had to go and take them. So you'd, you'd meet them in the school playground after lunch. Uh, and then you'll take them down to the annex. But bearing in mind that this annex, which I went to, when I got there, none of the keys the, kick, uh, the headmaster gave me worked. The classrooms inside were just full of junk. So eventually I got in through a, not caretaker, and I got all these kids to start clearing out the, the, uh, the classroom, completely emptying it so it was empty. And we put it all in the playground. They had the, the, uh, caretaker game mad at us you can't do that you can't do that. and well what am i going to do i you know i've got to have a space to teach the kids blah, blah, blah. and then in, once we got in because we didn't have any art materials or anything i had a bit of chalk i said right you can now start drawing your experience on the walls so <laughs> i did it and it was caused outrage in the school that i was actually you know encouraging kids to to do uh vandalize effectively what they saw but i was saying well artists are about invention creating opportunities from next to nothing and then building them up. Um, but the story about the remedial kids is that uh, I, I picked them up. We 
as I, it was May at the time, the season was May. And as we came out of the playground, a Labour Party parade was going down the road. It was May Day and it was a brass band sort of stuff. And there were 14 of these kids and the brass band went down Valance Road past where my uh, art room was and then carried on to Victoria Park. And I couldn't get the kids back. So the kids carried on to Victoria Park. So I immediately said, I'm going on an outdoor drawing exercise. (laughs) Anyway, this happened and the kids came back and had a great time. You know, it was, and they, their relationship with me massively improved. All of a sudden I was not the enemy. All of a sudden I was someone who was sharing their adventures. and I was saying, well, when we go back to college tomorrow, school tomorrow, we can start doing things about what we'd seen and done, etc. But then I was called up before the, the headmistress by this time saying, that is completely out of order. You're not allowed to do things like that. I said, well, what do you do then in such circumstances? I couldn't get back to, to, to get into the classroom. They were just determined to do what they wanted to do. My job was to give them some kind of guidance as we went. Of course. Anyway. Um, I didn't last long in school. <laughs> I was only there for nine months. But the the influences of the, oh, the other thing was that it was the beginning of major immigration of Pakistani children into the East End of London. And so one of my classes was totally, you know, 100% Pakistani children. And they were unbelievably fantastic. They were... <laughs> For me, a completely different experience because they were enthusiastic, committed, and they did wonderful work immediately. And it was like, wow, this is part of their culture. This is, they're bringing this here. They've, they've got it already. You know, they're not like the other, the, the other kids have got nothing or nothing in their culture. These have rich culture, which is in, which they're growing up with. And there they, there they were. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, so at this point, what you're starting to recognize and develop is a collaborative approach to art where you've already been informed as to the power of having art with integrity and honesty and a strong narrative. And now you're kind of putting it out there as a practice, not just in terms of individual artists, but creating collaborative art um, using the students as your, I guess, the first example. I I think... That's entirely right, but this is those experiences are very formative. They were the beginnings of where am I going with my work? The question was where am I? What am I going to do? How am I going to progress? And the next thing that happened to us is that I was very keen to work with others, and so my mate, the guy called Jim Ives, and my girlfriend, a lady called Barbara Wheeler Early. All still at college. Jim was at the Royal Academy. She was in Manchester. But we got this opportunity to work with a, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, sorry, I can't get the word out, uh, to work with um, Art Advisor uh, in, uh, in Redbridge, or no, it was, it was, uh, yeah, in Redbridge. And it, he was kind of like, listening to us almost like pub talk and saying, well, why don't you try to do something in schools with this kind of view? I said, well, okay, well, give us an opportunity. So he did, and he got this project together called, and it said, introducing colour to the school environment. That's what the subject was. And so we went ahead and we designed over the summer 
a whole, I don't know, at least 20 different designs for colouring the school environment. And we were on a high. We thought this is fantastic. I mean, I was really excited. And we did a presentation to the school and put the exhibition up. And it was quite clear of the divide. You had the enthusiastic teachers and a few of their LinkedIn pupils who were going, oh, all right, mister. Yeah, okay. But the rest of the kids were going, nah, not in our school. No, no, we don't want this. And it was quite clearly that we had not got, we hadn't, we had brought our ideas, but we hadn't conversed with them. And so the, so we then that night, literally, we we're doing a presentation to the Arts Council and all the big, big, big dignitaries the next day. And we changed, we wrote, rewrote our bid saying, um, art towards a live environment. And we said we didn't want to do any of this work. What we wanted to do was to work in the school for three months and come up with combined ideas involving the staff and the kids so that they could have their part to play. And that project really was a deciding point of where we were going. I, and when we came back, we did the exhibition and you know, we got the usual sort of a patronizing stuff. Um, but they rejected it. And, but they said, you can do a little bit of it. You can do this bit down here by the toilets sort of thing. We said, no, we're not doing that. We, we think we should be working with the school peoples and the, and the staff towards improving the environment using color. We need to engage with them. So. That was the beginning of where we were at. In making the pivot to creating art in a social context, would you say it just kind of evolved out of your experiences in education? Or was there a moment when you just sat down and went, okay, this is the direction we're heading in? No, it was a, it's, a, it's a slow evolution. Because you're all, you know, you have to try and earn a living. I was working in a uh, and a factory owning a few bob, and my other mates were still at college, you know. So it was kind of like, you know, it was about, you can't concentrate 100% on all of this. So the next opportunity we got was that the one of the art advisors we got to know said, oh, there's this old building down in Plasto, which um, you could probably use as a studio. And so we went there and we couldn't believe it. That's absolutely wonderful. In the middle, middle of probably one of the last war damaged derelict sites in Plasto, surrounded by rubble, which was a natural kids' playground. Mm. You know, so what happened there is we go, oh, great, this is an opportunity to do all our perceived work in the studio. But the kids made such a nuisance of themselves, running up and down the roof and all the rest <laughs> of it. What are you doing in there, mister? Constantly, that we had to address them. So this was the next chapter. We had to do something about this because they're driving us nuts. So eventually we, we started playing football with them um, and that, you know, eased things. And they thought, what are you doing in there, mate? Come on, tell us what you're doing. I said, well, we could, we'll, we'll let you in for an art class on Wednesday evening. <laughs> and we did this. Of course, and it's lasted a couple of weeks, but they soon got bored. <laughs> but essentially it showed us again that you, you have to interact, you have to create communication. And now we were doing work uh, artwork with other artists around London and elsewhere mm. and we were trying to build up an exhibition and the exhibition was going to go to Edinburgh and it was all about interactive public art uh, and we were doing things I was we were making maze designs that's what we were doing 
but this is still in isolation. This is still us as artists doing it and sure. looking for the opportunity to present it. Um, and what kind of happened is that the Edinburgh thing fell apart, but we got the opportunity, and this is a grouping of artists, probably 40 of us, different groupings, all meeting together, trying to get our thing together. We, we're going to do this, participate in that. Um, and we got the opportunity to do it in uh, Baker Street in the new um, uh, North London Polytechnic, I think it was at the time. It's now a university or something. And under, under the new buildings, they had a whole series of spaces which were all empty. And now they're all full up with, build, uh, with other classrooms or whatever. And so we put on this multimedia exhibition of interactive art. Amazing. Um, and we put it on it, about 12 groups of us. And it was very exciting and interesting work. But the only problem was nobody turned up. Nobody came to it. You know, the only people who came to it were your friends. Right. You didn't have any interaction with it. Even the students of the local u of the university took absolutely no notice of it. They just walked through it. And you, you go, there's nothing, there's nothing here that's arresting them. Yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. nothing that's changing them. And at the same time, we were in this place in Plaster and the kids were continuing to be a bit of a nuisance. So we thought we would have a little celebration of art. So we thought we'd do our artwork in the local field here. And invite, did it, set it up overnight and invite people on the Saturday to what we called freeform fun event. Anyway, that's the beginning of that word. Freeform came from a jazz term, by the way, i.e. that you could improvise and do things. And it wasn't always the same. You know, it was freeform. Amazing. Um, uh, and so we had this event and we were bombed by hundreds of kids and their parents. Well, I probably did the most embarrassing mural in my whole of my life with these kids running riot and throwing paint everywhere and et cetera, et cetera. But we were beginning to be turned on. This was a very exciting event with lots of other uh, community arts organisations getting involved. When I say lots, you talk about three or four. But there might be a thousand people who attended this party, if you like, in the field. And But we had the wit to do a circular around the street. Now, by this time, we won all the, uh, the credibility with the kids. Oh, I will take that. We'll get my mum to sign it. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we had probably had the best result on a circular or sort of any questionnaire you're ever, you know, an 80% return. And the, the questions were, you know, what was it? You know, and the answer to that was, it's a play scheme. Now, here we were, we were artists thinking we were creating an art event. And their view of it was it was a play scheme. Oh, I've never heard of it. And then it was like, should it happen again? Yes. When should it happen again? Every every holiday. <laughs> and it was things of this nature. Um, and then people uh, said uh, uh, we were a bit worried that a lot of the kids got covered in emulsion paint. They were covered in paint. And there was no reaction to that whatsoever. Oh, no, that's great. <laughs> so it was almost like all the things you were kind of worrying about were not a worry to them at all. And they had a great time. Let's do it again. So we then organised a jumble sale, probably to raise money to, to do a bonfire night. And we had a bonfire night, similar kind of thing. And this was the beginnings of this interaction between people and art. And it became a watershed for me. I mm. said, there are those artists who still wanted to do their work by themselves and present it for the public to look at. And then there was people like me who were developing the skills to actually have interaction and talk to people 
and change your work accordingly and allow them to influence you. And that was beginning to happen. That's fantastic. I mean, it must have been a really exciting time um, giving the kind of uh, social climate and what, I guess, the potential of art at that point. Um, this is a, a London before uh, mass gentrification. This is a London where artists can afford to live cheaply and yeah. that enables you to produce work and to engage in activities without a, a kind of a recognizable commercial uh, value to it. So it must have been a very exciting and, um, I guess, crazy time for you guys. Yes, but it was, it, it was still intellectual. We were still artists. We were still trying to do our work. We, we were being changed. We were being molded by those conversations. And they, were, they were the major influence. So if somebody said, most artists are asking, what's your major influence? It's, well, for us, the major influence was the people we spoke to. You know, that's where it was. And they were changing us. It wasn't the other way around. Uh, and so it was then a question of what kind of work do you do with these people? What what do they want? And uh, and, and so play schemes was one of that that thing. So oh, well, we don't want to be play scheme workers was our kind of uh, notion. So how do you turn that into something that's positive? So we approached um, local authorities to see whether we could do some work with them, and we began to realise the notion of festival was a real vehicle i.e. that you could do, uh, people would like to celebrate. So you get people, so we would create a festival. And we had several festivals in, in Canning Town and in Plasto, and they became really successful uh, vehicles for change, if you like. Mm. Um, and the local authorities then started to take notice because all of a sudden it was the whole of that street was actually saying, we want to do something like this, as opposed to we don't know. Yeah, uh, and it was it was being an influence, and that then grew, multiplied, effectively. Um, how did the uh, the projects regarding the murals and the gardens in uh, Hackney come about? That work was probably about five or six years beyond where we were when I was just talking before, um, and we had done a whole series. We had done a whole series of touring work. We'd actually worked in Liverpool um, uh, and in Manchester, uh, and we were doing uh, celebratory events involving people, and out of that came murals or sculptures or whatever of that kind. And we were trying to persuade Hackney Council that this could happen in Hackney, particularly to the derelict sites, that, and there were hundreds of them, existed in Hackney which hadn't been developed and was nobody no interest in them whatsoever and at that time the Labour Party or the Labour government had introduced um, oh, to remember the name, uh, urban program the urban program was a means by which government money could come to the local authorities to develop but the, written in the urban program they were also saying it had to engage local people and involve them. So that was our key. We were able to say to the local authority, we can engage local people to create changes in the neighbourhood. So it took, I have to say, it took about three years to convince <laughs> it didn't happen already. But eventually we had the support of the planning department uh, of doing this because one of the guys in the planning department had also been in Liverpool and seen what we'd done there. 
and realized this could happen in Hackney. So they then said, choose some sites in which you would like to do some changes. And they pointed us in a certain direction. And out of that came the project that you're talking that you live with, which we call the island on Evering Road. I remember it as Evering Road because that was part of my social history. Yeah, I yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we got about five projects to do in over two years. Uh, and they were all, I think, well, they're still there. Well, one of them's gone, but they're still there. They still have memories. And it's funny because at my local pub, not that we go in it anymore, but um, it's near a project that I did. And people often say to me, did you do that snake? I said, I said, yeah, we were involved in that. But my daughter was involved in that too. She did this. So, they, you know, people are having these stories in pubs, can you believe it, about how they participated in that project 35 years before. Fantastic. I guess the biggest thing for me with uh, those murals is even though I was a kid at the time of seeing the murals and being around the murals and playing around the murals, um, I didn't know anything about art beyond comic books, but I understood this was art. I understood it was public art and that it was public art that was about the community and it was for the community. And even though in my younger years, in sort of the early 80s, I was fascinated with uh, street art and graffiti, I understood this art had a participatory nature to it. Like I felt like the, the art was about people and involves people. Um, what were your thinkings behind creating the murals uh, with the community? Was there a process to it or did you just kind of just get in there and engage people? With the Evering Road one, we became aware that there was a, a group of local people who were up in arms about the fact that this site hadn't been dealt with and the council had led it as a derelict. And it's, it's, they were saying there was, and that group of people are represented in, in the figures in the, in the mural. There are some adults in it and they were fighting a campaign. So we found about them. We had meetings with them and then together we decided what we could do about transforming that particular site. And they said, oh, let's paint a mural. So, and what's the mural should be about? What would be the images? Oh, well, I want it trees and, you know, having good times. And so it, was, it all came from the conversations we had with the adult group with their children. So those people still exist. They're probably my age now, but, you know, they're, they're there. And that's how it came about. The, the, you know, it's a, a big tree, the image, and it's yeah. kind of like that's a tree, a symbol of, of uh, unity. And we're all underneath it, underneath it, and we're enjoying the thing underneath it. And then there's all the housing, and there's all kids enjoying themselves. And we've removed the dereliction that was there in front of it. So it was a positive, positive thing. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned that is probably worth expanding on is the uh, the idea of funding for your projects, because uh, for artists working today or socially focused artists, funding is always going to be a challenge and in some cases a sticking point in terms of getting your work out there so how did you was there a process by which you got better at seeking funding or was it something that you just learned as you went along um well we we got involved and i was the co-founder of a thing called the association of community artists so we realized that there wasn't just us doing this kind of work there were 
groups of artists all over all over England, and they were poorly uh, uh, represented in terms of the arts establishment. And quite frankly, the arts establishment is uh, even well, even more so today, extremely establishment, and I would say right wing. However, they would deny that totally. <clears throat> but they're about themselves. That's what they're about. And their genius and their ideas and everything else. And so this collaboration of groupings of people was there to lobby the Arts Council to recognise this work was going on. And it was a very effective lobby. And then the Arts Council wrote a report, which took two years to be written, of course. But the basic recommendations of that report was there should be a sum of money in the Arts Council set aside for this community arts development work. Uh, and, and from that, lots of groupings like us, Freeform, got our first real grant aid. It was a lot of money in those days. It was £14,000 for the year. And that was like, yeah! <laughs> you, you, and, but with that recognition, and lots of other groups got exactly the same thing, you had a little bit more power to persuade your local authority. So our, you know, I was explaining about the whole thing about the urban programme. Um, a similar example of that was sort of when I went, I went to work in uh, North Shields in, um, near Newcastle. And they had urban programme money, but they didn't really, and they didn't really know how to meet the criteria or, or that are set by the government right. or getting people involved. So the way they were doing it was, oh, we'll, we'll, build, a, we'll build a youth club. You know, and so what? Yet another youth club, <laughs> you know, sort of kind of scenario, and it, we run it with the normal staff, you know, and it was clear that they wanted something different. They heard about us. They asked us to come up, and well, I did um, two feasibility studies of how they could create a garden in a, in a um, involving people in a housing estate, and then how they could animate the fishing community to environmentally improve the bank side of North Shields, North Shields Fish Key. Mm. And we did those projects and they were enormously successful. I mean, the Fish Key Festival in its third year was claimed by the press to have over a million people attending. I was sceptical about that, but it was, it was well over 500,000 people attending Amazing. the festival in North Shields, wow. a, a nowhere place, effectively. But we then let that led to art led to uh, public art, it led to uh, designing street furniture, all themed and conditioned, all involving local people and local fishermen. I remember my meeting with the local fishermen, it was quite interesting. It, they, they were typically sceptical, as they would be now. You know, what's, what's art got to do with me? And I just said, well, what happened was that they had an emblem on their tie, which is two fins swimming fish. So I said, if I, I said to the chairman, look, if I could take your tie and blow it up a hundred times and put that image on the bank side uh, in mosaic and concrete and everything else. And they just looked at me and said, well, if you can do that, mate, you're in. It was almost like, you know, the recognition that you had actually engaged, they're going to get something out of what you did. That was the important thing. They are going to benefit. And which, in fact, was the case. I think it's a really important distinction you've made there that uh, the art you're producing is not only uh, is it about engaging local communities, it's for the local community in terms of 
um, uh, uplifting their economy and uplifting their communities. Yeah, so it can inspire them to do to also make creative contributions in their own community as, instead of being miserable buggers at home. <laughs> that's you know that's really what it's about. It's like enacting and enabling people to have a voice. Looking back on all of your work now, um, uh, decades later, what are your feelings on what you've achieved and kind of the state of public art uh, today? Well, there's two answers to that. One is that, that our own experience, and we we our company demised. We demised because we were caught in the um, uh, the 2008 crash, mm. financial crash. We had developed a building in Hackney called the Hot House. We invested a lot of money and time into it, and all of a sudden we owed money on this, and the banks wanted their money back, and. We couldn't do anything about that. We couldn't raise the money. And it was almost like we had, it was, they were calling in on us, but we didn't have, if you like, the real energy to fight the issue. Sure. We had exhausted. We didn't, we could, even though we, that, the building we built is fantastic. It's still there. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's studios, et cetera, et cetera. So it is as what we wanted, but it, we're not involved in it. Um, and it was, you know, immensely disappointing. And because of that disappointment, and I'd retired a year before, but you know, it was like, oh, and it was almost like I wanted to get back to individual art. <laughs> I wanted to revert back, but I haven't actually. But, you know, and the other thing was I was doing a, a project, which I, almost for the last 10 years of my creative life, which was about the environment, mm. uh, taking wasted glass and turning that into a decent product that could be used in everyone's home or in everyone's landscape. And it was being very successful. And we had developed loads of different ways of doing it and experimenting. But what we were now looking for was investment to actually take it to the next stage. So you can have stuff that you can make in a studio, but that's not going to make its impression uh, around the whole of London. You've got to be able to make stuff that can be put into a building. That you, know, that, you know, that is big enough. Therefore, you've got to go into industry. And we tried to raise money. Of course, it was the wrong time to raise money. Um, but we, I mean, there are 600 glass plaques that I made with my pals in a studio in Hackney, which are now describing the uh, 60 mile walk around London. And people walk over them all the time. And you've probably walked over several of them. They're sort of uh, one and a half meter square recycled glass coming from your old bottles. And that is a very good, sensible product, product which died as soon as it hasn't been picked up by anybody. That's it's so unfortunate. Yeah, it just, that's what happens. It, you know, people, you can't convince people. And money, uh, people just, the money world, oh, God, don't, I don't wish for this, to drive me nuts. Um, what are your feelings on public art today? So we've had a year where there have been a lot of conversations about public art and how we create public art, um, how communities come together to influence public art that goes up. Uh, and after a tumultuous year politically and socially, what are your thoughts on the public art scene today? I think it's reviving. I think the Black Lives Matter the, the notion of collective protest is so important because in a way, all of our projects were about that in many, 
minute scale. Mm. And it's, you know, it's getting a voice is what it's about. And essentially, for the last 20 years, England has lost, England people have lost their voice. They're not represented by anybody, you know, and they haven't got it. So I think the only way you could do it is not through government, not through local authorities, but through your own endeavour by coming together in various ways with different causes. I came across one of your advert, your art things. The billboards. Billboard. And I went, wow, I didn't know what it meant. But I thought I should inquire as to what it means. You know, so it's kind of you look yeah. and go, hang on, what's that saying? It's not saying the usual usual thing that an advert is saying so it must be saying something different so you, you this is good so what to me it's about the new arts uh, community taking responsibility and doing things that are going to affect their lives and the lives of their friends and families and grow into being more uh, culturally involved engaged in creating the new future it's not about politicians they can't do bugger all they haven't got any creative mouse whatsoever. <clears throat> creative people create the terms. And we've got to do it more. I think the art school, I mean, for me, I was so privileged. I, I grew up, I went to art school for seven years and I was paid to be there. Okay. You ask that of a kid today in, in of 17, 18, going to, they've got to pay 36,000 pounds. And then, yeah. you know, it's a real chore of, ugh, and it's kind of all that is politicians playing with the money, playing with the money. And I think they're playing totally the wrong way. So that, that, that uh, thing was brought in by Wilson in the Labour government. Free education, mm. free um, um, national health. And you can you think what, you know, we're, applauding the national health at the moment. They're doing a fantastic job, but they're doing a fantastic job in the crappiest of circumstances ever, with money being taken out of them, left, right and centre, over the last 20 years, and all privatised for people to make a few bob on. You know, you go, this is entirely wrong, all this, and it's up to us. We have to protest. We have to come alive. It's the new generation has to pick it up. Yeah, I mean, just by inspiration alone, I mean, the work that you guys have done in the past has paved the way for us to use creativity in this way as uh, social discourse. And so by using the example of what you guys did in the 60s, 70s and 80s, it gives us a framework to put our, our ideas out there. And rather than thinking of art in terms of purely or design in terms of a purely commercial exercise or driven by clients, and agencies we start thinking about design and art from an entrepreneurial standpoint and we start thinking okay well how can we use our skills to influence the community affect the community uplift the community so the work that you've done is an inspiration for people like me to use creativity in our lives to affect social change well i'm delighted to have been <laughs> Have, yeah, I'm delighted to have that response. And the fact that you live next to one of our murals. <laughs> and, you know, I've often wondered what that was like, but there you are, there it is. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I mean, it's one of the things where between the, um, the mural uh, on Evering Road, um, so this is near where I grew up, uh, and further down the road was the Hackney Peace mural, which I think went up in uh, 1985. 
And between those two pieces of work, which I saw pretty much every day for almost 20 years, that informs my sensibility of what London is. When we talk about art, I think it's really important to, for us to view it, not just in terms of uh, experiencing the art in aesthetically or in terms of the context, but art can represent the kind of world that we want to live in, a multicultural, multi-ethnic uh, group of people. Uh, London was a very different place in uh, the late 70s and early 80s, but there was a much stronger sense of community and engagement. Sorry? Bring it back. <laughs> Bring it back. Well, you know, I, I, like I say, the work that you guys have done has been such an inspiration and based on the last year, um, there's so many artists now using their skills to tackle social issues and to put their work in uh, the public, uh, the public eye. Uh, so hopefully this will usher in a, a new era of uh, public art and discourse. But the important thing is that the, the today's artists have this fantastic new media, the, the screen that we're now on. It's to use that as the means of communication. Is I think you know the more it happens, the better. The more yeah. it happens, more conversations that happen, the better. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, well, I think that's a good spot to uh, to wrap up. Um, Martin, okay. thanks again for your time. Um, okay. And thanks again for your work. Uh, it's an inspiration to us all. Um, for everybody you're watching. An you're an inspiration. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, we, we do our part. We do our best. I'm only responding because you inspired me. Oh, thank you. God bless you. That's, that's awesome. Um, for everybody watching, uh, I'll put links to, uh, Martin's work and, uh, the work of the Freeform Community Arts Trust in the show notes. Um, and, uh, thanks again. Pleasure. My thanks again to Martin for joining me on today's episode. His work can serve as an inspiration and an example for any creative looking to engage with the community. For full show notes and details, visit bunbury.co forward slash podcast. That's B-U-N-B-U-R-Y dot C-O forward slash podcast. And join me again next week for more inspiring conversations with the creatives looking to change the world. You've been listening to Design for the People with Greg Bunbury.